Thank you, Jan. Good job. Take your Bibles, turn with me tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The 13th chapter of Corinthians is, without a doubt, one of the finest descriptions of love that exists. And although 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter, the love that is being described here is not romantic love. It is, in fact, a part of Paul's discussion about the spiritual gifts and how they are to be exercised in the church. In fact, from chapter 12 through chapter 14, we really are discussing how worship is to be conducted within the confines of the church. The apostle ends his discussion of the spiritual gifts in verse 31 by saying, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. As I understand that verse, he is not instructing individual Christians to seek after the better or more demonstrative gifts, but he is rather asking for the whole church to desire those gifts that are most profitable for the church. Yet Paul is not saying that love is the means by which these gifts are to be exercised, but rather he is saying the spiritual gifts are the means by which love is exercised. Now I want you to note three things with me about that Paul says about love. First of all, there is the contrast of love in the first three verses. He says, though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Because the Corinthians were enamored with the more demonstrative spiritual gifts, such as the gift of tongues, the gift of knowledge, the gift of prophecy, Paul says that even if they have what they consider the most desirable of the spiritual gifts and they do not possess love, it is just so much noise. Paul says that love is greater than persuasive speech. He says that love is greater than any of the spiritual gifts and that love is greater than sacrificial giving. Now we do need to take just a moment, and I'm not going to spend a long time here describing this, but the New Testament, of course, was written in Greek, a rich language that has four different words that describe for different kinds of love. The word used here in 1 Corinthians is the word agape, and it best describes unconditional love. The love of which Paul speaks is a behavior we exercise even when we don't feel loving or feel lovable. The second thing that I want you to note with me tonight is the character of love. It says love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not 
parade itself, is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. It thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. He first of all begins by saying what love is. Love is described by two action words. Paul is not talking about love as some kind of a warm, fuzzy, affectionate feeling, but love as seen in action. And the first characteristic that he uses to describe here is often translated patient, suffers long. King James Version uses the word long-suffering. The Greek word here is very particular because it is used to describe patience, all right, but patience with people rather than with circumstances. It doesn't mean to feel patient, but it means to act patiently. It's a word literally meaning to be inconvenienced and yet to endure and not to want to strike back when you're inconvenienced. One of the greatest stories of patience, perhaps, is the story of Abraham Lincoln. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was a man by the name of Edwin Stanton. He called Lincoln, among other things, a low, cunning clown, the original gorilla... He said it's ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they can easily see one in Springfield, Illinois. Talking about Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln never responded in kind to his slander. But when he became president and he needed a secretary of state, a secretary of war, he chose Edward Stanton. When his friends were somewhat flabbergasted, And asked why, Lincoln replied, because he's the best man for the job. Years later, as the president body lay in state after his assassination, Stanton looked into the coffin and said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His animosity had been broken by Lincoln's long-suffering non-retaliatory spirit, patience wore out. Not only is patience, not only is love patient, it is kind. This again is an action word. It describes an active goodness that goes forth on the behalf of others. Love acts in a way that is useful and gracious. And then Paul begins to describe what love is not. He says it is not envious. Love does not envy. Envy is when a person wishes they could have what another person has. It can be a possession, a talent, a job, a house, a family, appearance, even a spiritual experience. We tend in our day to think of envy as a small and inconsequential sin. But in fact, it is not because because of envy, Abel was murdered. And because of envy, Joseph was enslaved. Envy at its worst reveals itself when we start diminishing the accomplishments 
of another or when we rejoice when we learn that that person is struggling or when we actually say and do things to undermine a person's success. Love is not envious. Love is not proud. Love does not parade itself or is not puffed up. Real love doesn't have to brag. It doesn't brag about its sacrifices or draw attention to itself or what it's doing. Love is not rude. It does not behave rudely, or I think as the King James Version has it, unseemly. Love always treats others with compassion and respect. Love controls its moods. Not friendly one day and distant the next. Selfish. It doesn't seek its own. Love does not consider itself first and is actively interested in what will be of help to others. Love is not easily irritated. That is, not provoked. It's worthy of considering that that sin kept Moses out of the promised land. The Greek word translated not provoked or easily angered means to arouse to anger. Now, anger is not always bad. Notice our text does not say that the loving person is never angered. It says we are not to be easily angered. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, Be angry, but do not sin. So the question becomes, of course, when is anger sin? Anger is sin when it causes us to have ill feelings toward another person. Anger is sinful when it is without a cause. Anger is sinful when it is disproportionate. There are two wrong ways that people respond to irritating and stressful situations. The first of which is they may explode. Some seek to justify their explosion by saying, yes, I sometimes lose my temper, but it's all over in just a few minutes. So is a nuclear bomb, but the destruction is still there. A great deal of damage can be done in a very short time. A second incorrect way of reacting rather than responding is to stuff our anger and to stew. Some people actually say nothing at the time that they get angry, but they stew on it. And on and on and on. And when you stuff your anger, it will come out in other ways, and that anger, if not dealt with, will turn into bitterness. Love does not hold a grudge, keeps no record of offenses, thinks no evil. The word that is translated there is an accounting word or a bookkeeping term. It's used of entering sums into a ledger so that they will not be forgotten. That is precisely what some people do with offenses. They write them down in their mental ledger so that they will not be forgotten. 
There are many marriages and other relationships that are handicapped or even destroyed because of the past. One man said to a counselor, every time we have a discussion, my wife gets historical. The counselor said, do you mean hysterical? He says, no, I mean historical. She brings up everything I've ever done wrong. How historical are you in keeping accounts with people? And finally, it does not rejoice in evil. Love does not rejoice in sin, whether it's one's own sin or someone else's sin. Love does not rejoice when others fall into sin. Verse number 7 tells us what love does. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That first Bears all things is a very interesting word. It means literally to cover. To cover. When you hear gossip about someone you know, do you rise to their defense and say, wait, 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 we don't know the whole story, or there's two sides to every story? Or do you lean in closer to get the nitty-gritty details? Peter describes it this way, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. So, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love always has the best possible interpretation on everything that happens. Love trusts that good good will ultimately went out. Love hopes all things. When he was an old man, the master painter Henry Matisse was crippled by arthritis. Wrapping his fingers around a brush was very painful and painting was agony. Someone asked him why he kept painting. His answer was, The pain goes away. The beauty endures. That's hope. Finally, he says love endures all things. He sums up his beautiful description of love by saying that love endures all things. In other words, love never gives up. It hangs on. It holds on. You can count on it. That is the kind of love you are to have for one another, love that can be trusted. When we love unconditionally, we demonstrate the self-sacrificial love of Jesus as he was willing to leave his heavenly home down across for us while we were still sinners, while we were at our worst and our most unlovable. Someone has suggested that if you, one of the best ways to evaluate your walk in love is to look at this passage and substitute the word I for every time the word love or it occurs. In other words, can you say, I am patient, I am kind, I do not envy, I do not boast. And I'm not proud. 
I'm not self-seeking. I do not easily anger. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but rejoice in the truth. I always protect. I always trust. I always hope, and I always persevere. How well did you do? When you look at it and read it in that fashion, it sounds a little far-fetched that we might claim that we're perfect, if not a little bit ridiculous. The character of love. And finally, the constancy of love. Verse number 8 says, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. Paul picks the three most demonstrative or spectacular of the spiritual gifts. Prophecy, tongues, and the gift of knowledge. And by choosing these three gifts, Paul is focusing on the gifts that the Corinthians hold in special regard. And the apostle says, when that which is perfect has come, these temporary gifts will cease. At this point, the whole argument arises in New Testament theology called cessationism or the gifts cease. It's the belief that at least some of the spiritual gifts have ceased to function. I do lean that direction, that some of these gifts have ceased to function. But I have also come to the point to understand that I can't put God in a box. And that God is God. And if God chooses to use those gifts today, who am I to tell him he can't? He can't. Some hold that when it says these gifts are temporary and that they will cease, they do so on the base of the phrase, and when that which is perfect comes. Now, what does that mean? Well, it depends on which commentary you read. There are at least seven different um, possibilities that I've read. Some hold that this refers to the completion of the canon, that is, the completion of the New Testament. Others hold that it refers to when a believer enters into the eternal presence of the perfect one, Jesus. I don't know the complete answer to that. Verse number 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul illustrates the level of the maturity of the Corinthians in the church age against the period of childhood and human development. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, you might say the church was in its childhood. But at the point when all of this new revelation was being completed and made available to the church in the New Testament, this time is compared to the time of, of, a, man, of a boy entering into manhood. In Paul's Jewish background, manhood would happen at the age of 13. when a a boy would be declared to be a man. This did not mean there would be no further growth or development in the life of that young man. It simply pointed to a time when official adulthood would come. Verse number 12 says, 
and now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. What he had said up to this point about attaining the fullness of God's revelation for the church age made him think of an even more glorious future time when we would have no further need for revelation of any kind through intermediaries because instead we'd be on a, first of, on a face-to-face personal basis with God himself. Today we can look into a good mirror. It's clear. But in the ancient world, mirrors were made out of polished metal. And the image was always unclear and somewhat distorted. The city of Corinth was famous for producing some of the best bronze metal uh, mirrors in all of the ancient world. But at their best, they couldn't give a really clear vision. Paul's saying that when we see Jesus now, we only see a dim, we see him in a dim and unclear fashion. But one day, one day, we will see him with perfect clarity. When we get to heaven, we'll have a clear vision of the Lord. Now, heaven is <clears throat> precious to us for a great many reasons. As we get older, we find ourselves longing for heaven because we have more and more of our loved ones who have passed on over to the other side. We think about all of those great saints of the past, men and women of God who have walked before us, and we think of what it would be like to be able to sit in their presence We read about the descriptions of the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and the angels around the throne of God worshiping day and night. But none of those things are, and as precious as they are, make heaven really heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the unhindered, unrestricted presence of our Lord and to know him just as I am also known, it will be one of the greatest experiences of our eternal existence. Verse 13 says, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And Paul says the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest because it will continue, it will even continue to grow in eternity. When we're in heaven, faith and hope will have fulfilled their purpose. We won't need faith because we'll see God face to face. We won't need hope in the coming of Jesus once he comes. We will always, though, love the Lord and each other and grow in that love throughout eternity. Let me close with this illustration tonight. There was a man who had only an eighth grade education. This man really wanted to be a soul winner. He wanted to bring people to know Jesus as their personal Savior. And God had laid a brilliant attorney on his heart. So obeying the Lord, 
he went to the talk, talk to this attorney about Jesus. He no sooner had begun when the attorney used his legal training and all his brilliant mind to turn that man inside out. Finally, the man apologized for coming, for taking up the attorney's time, and he left with tears in his eyes. But as he was leaving, he said, I just want you to know that I came because I loved you. Dejected, he went home. He told his wife, he said, I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to talk to anyone for the rest of the day. I just want to go into the bedroom and be left alone. I feel like such a failure. About an hour later, the lawyer came knocking on the man's door. He told the man's wife that he'd like to see her husband, and she said, I'm sorry, but he's not seeing anyone today. Oh, he said, I think you'll see me. Just tell him who I am. And so the husband allowed the attorney to come into the room, and he said, why have you come? Have you come to make fun of me? Have you come to argue with me again? You know I am not in a class with you, and I can't argue with you. The lawyer said, no, I haven't come to argue with you. I've come to ask you to tell me how to be saved. The man said, I don't understand. What changed your mind? Every time I tried to tell you about Jesus, you came up with an argument that I couldn't answer. The lawyer said, yes, I did. But you came up with one argument that I didn't have an answer for. The man looked at him and said, and what was that? The lawyer replied, when you looked at me and told me that you loved me, I couldn't argue with that. Nothing will win the victory over other people and over circumstances like love will. It is love that makes the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these people who have been so faithful to come tonight. I pray that our hearts might be encouraged and our hearts might be challenged as we have looked into your word. I pray that you'd help us to be excited about the fact that one day we're going to see you face to face. One day we're going to, we're going to have uninterrupted experience with you. We'll have an opportunity to communicate with you face to face. What a glorious day that will be. Lord, I pray for your presence in uh, the conclusion of this service, and I pray that you move our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.